Well, good morning, church. Is everyone awake? Uh, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. We are, I am so excited because we're starting a new sermon series this morning in the book of Philippians. Um, so I am so thankful that um, most folks seem back after a few weeks uh, away being ill and whatnot. So um, it's good to see most of you back. So before we start, I want uh, all the kids in the room, if I can have your attention for a moment, if you are a young child. Now, what do you guys think about when you hear the phrase, happiness is a warm puppy? Does that mean anything to you kids? No, not at all? Okay, maybe you're too young for this. Well, it's a kid's storybook that should remind you, it would certainly remind you, your parents, of the well-known gang of Charlie Brown, Snoopy, Lucy, and Linus. And this morning, I'm going to do something that has never been done before from this pulpit. I am going to read a kid's storybook for all of you. I know. I knew the kids would be excited, but I guarantee you your parents are way more excited than you are. Now, each page in this book describes happiness in a different way. It's just a really short kid's book, so I'll just read it here real quick. It says this, happiness is a thumb and a blanket. Happiness is a pile of leaves. Happiness is finding someone you like at the front door. Happiness is three friends in a sandbox with no fighting. Happiness is 35 cents for a movie, 15 cents for popcorn, and a nickel for a candy bar. You can't buy that kind of happiness anymore. (laughs) Happiness is a fuzzy sweater. Now, doesn't that make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside just thinking about the simple pleasures of life? It certainly does for me. And then the book ends with this phrase. It says this, happiness is one thing to one person and another thing to another person. Man, you thought this was a children's book, but it ends with a deeply philosophical statement. And doesn't this statement succinctly capture what our culture has trained us, even from a young age, to think that happiness is whatever it means to you, and it means different things to different people? Now, I am not here suggesting that we should cancel Peanuts or Charlie Brown. But I do want us to see a couple things from this simple children's book. Here are three observations. Happiness is something that is simple enough, it's a simple enough concept that children can understand it, can't they? Happiness is universal and everybody longs for it. And number three, everyone will ultimately live their life according to how they define happiness. All from a children's book. So kids, what do you guys think happiness is? I really want you to think about that question, especially as we go over the book of Philippians over the next several months. And parents, this is a great opportunity to have conversations with your kids about what the Bible teaches about happiness or joy. 
Now, I am not one that makes a huge distinction between happiness and joy. I understand why people do that, but the common idea that both words convey is that it's, it's, they both are feelings of being satisfied, of being gratified, of feeling content. So I really don't have a problem with using these words interchangeably, depending on how you define them, right? But there are some significant questions about happiness or joy that the Bible answers very differently than our secular culture or any other religion in the world for that matter. Here are just a few questions that I thought about that the Bible answers very differently. What is the source of ultimate happiness or joy? Does happiness or joy depend on circumstances? Is sorrow inconsistent with happiness or joy? How do I experience happiness or joy? Now, I am really eager because over the next several months in the book of Philippians, we are going to get to discover the answer to these questions from a biblical perspective. Now, we chose to title this series, Our Guide to Indestructible Joy. And I did this for two reasons. First and foremost, joy is a very significant theme in the book of Philippians. If you just go through this book, there are at least 15 explicit references to some form of the noun joy or the verb rejoice in this short letter. Just here in the back, you can see that Paul prays with joy, he rejoices in the Philippians, he tells the Philippians to rejoice on multiple occasions. And we're going to see over the next several months that joy is a significant theme in Paul that he wants to convey to the Philippians. Now, the second reason I want us to consider this theme in Philippians is because, like I mentioned last week, I sense a weariness, a lack of joy that many of us are facing in our lives. Now, whether this is suffering in your life caused by sickness or just weariness caused by the prolonged season of COVID and all the issues surrounding that, or maybe you're in a long season of unanswered prayer, all of these things have sapped our joy. And my hope is that as we consider this letter, that the Lord would use it to renew and restore, or maybe even for the first time, cause us to experience deep and abiding joy that is indestructible. Now, before we go any further, let me define what I mean by joy. Now, this may not be the best definition, but I think it is the most consistent with the book of Philippians. It's something I've used um, that I've modified based on what something that John Piper says about joy. And this is what I came up with. It says, Christian joy is an emotion we experience that is produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ displayed in the gospel and in God's people. Let me read it again. Christian joy is an emotion we experience that is produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ displayed in the gospel and in God's people. This is how Paul defines it in Philippians, as we'll see. So a couple of things to point out in this definition. First, joy is an emotion that we experience. There is no getting around that. 
Joy is not a decision we make. It is not some sort of agreement with biblical truth. Joy is a good feeling we experience. Now, I know emphasizing emotions is not very popular in our circles, but I want you to know that if your relationship with the Lord is only characterized by believing the right things about God or just doing the right things for God, and there is a lack of genuine joy in the Lord, then you are missing out. Now, I'm not saying this to anyone to make you feel guilty. Rather, I want you to know that there is so much more available. There are real emotions of joy and satisfaction that we were created to experience that you can experience in your relationship with Christ. Now, the second thing to notice in this definition is that, that because joy is a feeling or an emotion, it is not something we can produce on our own. You guys know feelings are fickle. You can't make yourself feel a certain way, can you? I certainly can't. That is why Christian joy must be produced by the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in one of his other letters that joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit is significant in Philippians as well. We're going to see Paul talks about the help of the Spirit, the participation or fellowship in the Spirit, and worship by the Spirit. So we are going to desperately need the Spirit's work among us to produce this joy in us. Third thing to notice in this definition is that Christian joy is rooted in the fixed realities about the beauty of Jesus Christ displayed in the gospel. Here's how Paul says it in, in Philippians 3. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Again in chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord. We cannot experience Christian joy outside the Lord. All right? We cannot experience it outside the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and all that he has done for us in the gospel. We're going to learn in the book of Philippians that Paul's greatest joy is seeing and knowing and relating to Jesus Christ as the source of his highest joy. And through this letter, he wants the Philippians to experience that, and the Lord wants us to experience that as well. The final thing to notice is that Christian joy is something that is experienced in God's people. Christian joy is inextricably linked to God's people. There's so, this is all throughout the letter, but just one example is, Paul says, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown. You cannot read this letter without seeing Paul's joy in the Philippians, for the Philippians. Now, this is not something we think about very often in our westernized forms of Christianity that is very individualistic. But I think we miss out on the depth of joy that is available in friendships and relationships that we have in the church. And we're going to see in the book of Philippians how much that is a source of joy for Paul himself. So my hope is that through our study in Philippians, we're going to learn to enjoy and treasure Jesus Christ above all things, and then we're also going to learn to enjoy and cherish the gift of other believers God has given us in the gospel, and that both these things would be a source of indestructible joy in our life, no matter what life brings our way.
Now, before we get into this letter, let's briefly consider a few matters of historical context that are really going to help us understand this letter. First, Paul is the author of this letter. Most of you know who Paul is, but let's just remind yourself, who is Paul? Much of what we learn about Paul is from his other letters in the New Testament, but specifically in the book of Acts, we hear about a lot of his journeys. Paul is also known as Saul. Um, He was a strict Pharisee, and we learned a lot about Pharisees in our previous series in the book of Luke. Just like all Pharisees, he was so zealous for his Jewish faith that he sought to destroy the early church by persecuting Christians. But something happened one time when he was on his way to persecute Christians. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears to him and radically transforms the life of this ruthless murderer. And here's how God describes the reason for Paul's salvation and his life mission in Acts. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Now listen to this. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now God intervened in in Paul's life in such a clear and personal way because God had chosen Paul to declare the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles and to suffer for the name of Christ. Now Paul is going to be on the receiving end of suffering for the rest of his life, even until death. Here's a sampling of his sufferings that he describes in the book of Second, in the letter to Second Corinthians. He says this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes last one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. Night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. Danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. I can't even say this, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from these things, there is a daily pressure on me of the anxiety of all the churches. Man, and the main insight I want us to grab from God's um, mission for Paul's life is that Paul's life would be characterized by suffering. But if that is true, why is Paul's letter to the Philippians overflowing with joy? I think Paul wants the Philippians to see that suffering and joy are not incompatible. And I pray that we can see that as well as we walk through this letter. Now, the second point for context, who are the Philippians? Now let's briefly recount the events surrounding the planting of the church from Acts 16 that Beth read for us earlier. Now you'll have an image in the back that that shows the route of Paul's second missionary journey. So I'm going to get the directions mixed up, but I think it's on this side, yeah. Uh, So Paul and Silas start in Jerusalem. They go through the regions of Galatia, which is in green, to strengthen some of the churches that Paul had planted earlier. This is where he meets Timothy, who joins him on his journey. But as they continued, they were, for some reason, prevented by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel in Asia. Now, Asia is the region in yellow that you see in the back. So for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit was preventing them, and this is why. 
When they get to Troas, which is at the northern tip of Asia, Paul receives a vision from the Lord in which he sees a man that is desperately asking them to come preach the gospel in Macedonia. Macedonia is an orange up there. Now, Philippi was one of the most important cities in Macedonia. It was a city of military and political power in the Roman Empire. And Paul and Silas decide to start their ministry here. Now, while I have this image up there, I also want to point out on the map where Antalya is, where we have some good friends of ours proclaiming the gospel. And I also wanted you to see the island of Nisairos. This is where we have sent our pastor, Steve and Joy, on exile. I mean, uh, sabbatical for some rest. Um, I think they should be back from that. Now, Paul and Silas were in Philippi only for a few short days, but in those few short days, so much stuff happens. There was a wealthy woman named Lydia that we heard about. She was the first person to get saved, and then not only her, but her whole household gets saved. And her home actually becomes the first place in that city where Christians gather to worship in her house. A little later, we find out there is, we didn't read this in Acts, but Paul casts out a fortune-telling demon from a slave girl in Philippi. And the owners of that girl were so ticked because they couldn't make money off of this uh, fortune-telling girl anymore. And because of this, they complained to the crowds and to the magistrates, and, and they stirred up a riot. And the crowd started to beat up Paul and Silas and put them in prison. And even in prison, we find Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns to God. Another piece of evidence that joy is not incompatible with suffering. Anyway, through a miraculous series of events, the jailer gets saved and so does his entire family. And just in a few short days when Paul and Silas are leaving Philippi, this small fledgling church consisted of a diverse group of believers. There was a wealthy merchant named Lydia, potentially a slave girl, and a Roman jailer and his family. That was the initial church in Philippi. Now, the last point for historical context, why did Paul write this letter? This letter was written by Paul in about 62 AD while he was imprisoned in Rome. And now, now how did Paul end up in jail? It's a long story in the book of Acts, but basically it can be summarized into this. Paul was falsely accused by the Jews for stirring up riots, and he ends up facing trial for almost two years. He goes to, through trial for almost two years before different rulers. At that point, Paul says, I've had enough. I appeal my case to Caesar. Caesar is the emperor of Rome, and Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, he had the right to do that. So after a long, treacherous journey, Paul is taken to Rome where he awaits trial before Caesar. And it is from there in prison where he's awaiting trial, he writes this letter. Now the Philippians, they love Paul because of how he planted the church. And when they hear that Paul is in prison, they send a representative from their church, a guy named Epaphroditus. And we'll meet him in a few short weeks. And they send him with a gift from the church, probably some financial and material needs that would help Paul continue his ministry from prison. And Epaphroditus, along with giving this gift from the church, he also tells Paul about the situation back in Philippi. And he fills him in on the issues going on there, and then he returns from Paul carrying this letter in his hand to the Philippians. 
So first and foremost, this letter to the Philippians is a letter of thanksgiving. Paul in this letter wants to convey to the Philippians, hey, thank you. You guys have been my greatest support. Thank you for financially meeting all of my needs. Thank you for praying for me. And he does that throughout this letter. But Paul also uses this opportunity to address some of the issues that was facing the church. Epaphroditus lets Paul know that the church was struggling because they were facing some opposition from outside the church. Remember, the church in Philippi was born in the midst of much suffering and opposition and persecution from the pagan Roman citizens. And no doubt that opposition continued after Paul left. Not only that, but there was some internal unrest in the church. There seems to be conflict within the church between two significant women leaders, and it was affecting the very unity of the church. So this small fledgling church in Philippi was facing adversity from outside and from within. And because of that, they had lost their sense of joy. And they were tempted to abandon their struggle. So Paul, who is the guy who has experienced suffering of many kinds, hopes that this letter can once again be a source and a means by which they can regain their joy in the Lord in the midst of suffering and trials. Now, church, how do you feel this morning? How is your joy? Paul would want to first remind each of us that suffering and joy are not incompatible. Paul's definition of joy includes the reality of sorrow and grief and suffering. For Paul, it was a trial looming over his head with a potential sentence of death. Think about that. How was he joyful? Now, my hope is that through the Spirit's work among us as we walk through this letter, that we would also experience a deep sense of joy as we see the beauty of Christ displayed in the gospel and the gift of Christ in God's people among us. So, this morning, let's consider the first few verses together briefly that function as a greeting of this letter. Now, in these first two verses... The thing I want you to see more than anything is that Paul is absolutely captivated by Jesus Christ. He says the name of Jesus three different times in just these two verses. Paul is captivated by Jesus. First, he says, first point, we are servants of Christ. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul begins this letter with identifying the authors as Paul and Timothy. Now, we know that Paul is the sole author of this letter because we're going to see that in the verses that follow, but he likely includes Timothy here because he wants to send Timothy, who is with Paul, soon to the Philippians to encourage them and to care for them. And by including Timothy's name here, Paul is adding certainty in the minds of the Philippians that when Timothy comes, he's going to bring Paul's heart and affection and also Paul's teaching and exhortation with him. Now he goes on to identify themselves as servants of Christ Jesus. Now the word used here for servant is doulas. Most people here should know what that word means. Now that word means something completely different as I've learned recently that it refers to someone helping a woman deliver babies. Anyway, that's beside the point. Um, 
Now, the word translated in some of your translations probably most appropriately means slave. And there's many reasons translators choose servant versus slave. But to think of ourselves as servants of slaves really goes against our sense of personal autonomy and freedom that we prize so much, doesn't it? I'm not a slave to anyone. Are you kidding me? I am my own man. Well, that's what we think. Well, here's the reality. The Bible teaches us that we are either slaves to sin and the devil in the kingdom of darkness, or we are slaves to God in the kingdom of righteousness. There is no in-between. But the good news is that every other master will exploit us, abuse us, and leave us disappointed. But when we submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus, we are set free from slavery to sin and experience joyous fellowship with God. So what does it actually mean to be a slave or a servant of Jesus? Paul says this in his letter to the Corinthians. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a bondservant of Christ. When you were bought with a price, do not become bondservants of men. So the same word used again. Paul is basically saying, if you were a slave when you got saved, consider yourself free in the Lord. If you were free when you got saved, consider yourself a slave to Christ. Why? The next phrase says that. Because we were bought with a price. To be a servant or slave of Christ is to understand that you are no longer your own. Paul is letting the Philippians know at the outset that his life is not his own. It has been bought with a price. Now, Paul uses the same word only one other time in the letter in Philippians in chapter 2, and it is a famous passage that I'm not going to read right now. But he does so in the context of encouraging the Philippians to reflect on the servanthood of Jesus in his incarnation and death. Paul is saying up front here in the first verse, I have done this in my life. You have seen the way that I live. My life does not belong to me. It belongs to Christ. The gospel has worked in Paul's life in such a deep way that being considered a slave of Christ is a source of comfort and joy to him. Doesn't this remind us of the first question in the New City Catechism and even the Heidelberg Catechism that says this, what is our only hope in life or death? that we are not our own, that we are servants, that we are slaves. We belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, I know personal autonomy and freedom is something that we prize in our culture very much. Americans, those of you who are Americans like us, especially hate being told what to do. We love our freedoms. But freedom to do whatever we want is not the key to joy and satisfaction in this life. Joy comes by recognizing that we are not our own, but we have been bought with the costly price of the blood of Jesus Christ. And belonging to our good and gracious master is our only source of joy in this life. Now, just a point of application here. What would it look like for you to see yourself as a servant or a slave of Christ? Just think about that category. 
How would it impact your personal and family priorities? Your finances? How would you view your very sufferings that you are walking through currently if you saw yourself as a servant of Christ? Paul is inviting the Philippians to follow his and Timothy's example in tasting the freedom and joy that comes from bowing to the lordship of Christ. Friends, Paul is in custody. He's awaiting the outcome of his trial before Caesar. And because he knows that he is a servant and slave of Christ, that has set his heart free to accept the outcome of that case. As long as Christ is glorified, whether in his life or in his death. We're going to see that in a few weeks. Second point here, we are saints of Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, the Paul, Paul wants the Philippians to know that this letter is addressed to all of them in the church, but he also wants to specifically recognize the leaders in the church. Overseers, uh, as we see in other passages, is another term for elders or pastors in the church who are tasked with shepherding, governing, teaching, and caring for the church. Deacons are leaders in the church as well who assist the elders by caring for the physical and practical needs of the church. Now, what is significant here is that Paul refers to all the Philippians as saints. Now, saint is an interesting term. In our common use in our culture, we might use it to say something like, oh, she's a saint, referring to someone who is kind and generous. Or maybe in the Catholic Church, you might attain the status of sainthood if you, through your extraordinary ways in which you serve others, bless others, or perform a miracle. But here, Paul is using this term to refer to all Christians in the church. Now, what's going on here? The word means to be holy, set apart, pure, blameless, worthy to stand in the presence of God. But you might be wondering, how is that possible? How can sinful people like Lydia and the jailer and Paul and Timothy and you and I stand in the presence of God who is holy? The answer lies in the qualifying phrase, in Christ Jesus. Saints in Christ Jesus. We are not saints because of any good deeds we have done, but we are because we have been set apart, called holy and blameless because we are in Christ Jesus. In Christ is Paul's way of saying that those who trust in Christ are so tightly bound to Jesus that his obedience becomes ours. His suffering becomes ours. His resurrection life is also ours. What a privilege we have, all of sheer grace. No works, nothing we bring. Friends, that is a source of comfort and joy for Paul. And I hope that is a source of joy for you today. Final point, we have grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this verse is kind of like a blessing or a benediction, if you will. And it's interesting because it is directed to people, to the Philippians. It says, grace to you. At the same time, he's calling for grace and peace to come from God 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is more than just a phrase that Paul is using. Sometimes people just say grace and priest as just kind of a formality or a greeting. Paul is not doing that here. Paul is doing something much more than that. These words act as a blessing and a prayer that becomes the very means by which Paul expects the Philippians to experience tangibly grace and peace. In fact, in Paul, Paul begins most of his letters with some form of grace to you. So, what he is saying is, as you read this letter, I am praying that grace would come to you as you read this letter. Paul typically ends most of his letters. In Philippians, he ends each letter with some form of grace be with you. So he expects grace to come to us as we read the letter, and he expects grace to be with us as we carry on with our lives after reading this letter. So by grace, Paul here is referring to the grace that we receive through our Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sake laid down his life on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to God. That is the grace that we have received. And the peace Paul is referring to here is the peace that we have with God because of his grace. Our relationship with God was not always peaceful. Apart from Christ, our relationship was characterized by hostility because of our sin. But because of his sacrifice, Jesus assuages the wrath of God and we can have peace with God. The Philippians here are being reminded that they have already received grace and peace in the gospel. But through this blessing, Paul is also praying that they would continue to experience more grace and more peace from God through this letter. And that would be a source of joy for them. And I pray that that would be the same for us as well. Now, you would think that these first couple of verses are just kind of token statements that you really don't want to think about very much, and there's kind of um, just kind of a simple greeting. But I hope that in these two verses, you can first and foremost see that Paul's absolutely obsessed with Jesus. He is captivated by him. You know that is the deepest source of joy for him. And by saying that him and Timothy are slaves of Jesus Christ, he shows us that belonging to Jesus is the source of his deepest joy in this life. By reminding the Philippians that they are saints in Christ Jesus, he shows them the joy that they can experience by knowing that they are holy, blameless, accepted by God because of Christ. And finally, there is grace and peace that God has for us to increasingly abound in joy as we savor the gift of Jesus Christ and the relationships that we have in the gospel. Now, I'm eager to see how Paul unpacks this in the rest of his letter, and I hope you are too. Let me just put a discussion question up for you. Is this something that you can use to have conversations after church uh, with your family or, or with friends that you're with? Is being a slave or a servant of Christ and a, saint of, and a saint in Christ a source of joy in your life? So just think about that as you leave from this place.